So when I was growing up, my favorite thing to read was uh, Sherlock Holmes stories. Um, it was probably because I didn't have the attention span to read a real full book. I just like short stories, I guess. But um, I also really love plot twists. I'm not sure if you guys do. Some people think plot twists are cliche. Um, and there are definitely like, ways to do plot twists in a really cheap way. But I actually think plot twists are really hard to pull off well. If you think about your favorite movie or book with a plot twist in it, you know, people like The Sixth Sense or Usual Suspects or um, Avengers Infinity War, if you guys are Marvel fans. <laughs> I will not spoil any of those movies for you, but they do have plot twists. You can remember exactly where you were when the plot twist happened, right? It's like, whoa, you know, it like totally freaks you out. Uh, and writing is really hard to, to pull off to have that effect, right? There are expert writers who figure out how to do this. So a plot twist has to include uh, some information that's key to like one of the characters or the setting that's withheld for a very calculated, precise amount of time. And then at a key moment, it's revealed, right? A revelation happens. And suddenly, the information is thrust on the audience and everything is changed. And when the plot twist is done well, it puts a fork in the road, right? And it does two things. Everything you've seen up until that point is now totally changed and recontextualized, and you're having to rethink through everything. But also, it opens up new possibilities that you didn't expect for the rest of the plot. Right? Even if the plot just happens in the last couple of minutes, there's all this new horizon that opens up after the plot twist happens. And so what happens today in our gospel is something like a plot twist. Peter and the disciples are, are experiencing something like a plot twist. There's buzz about Jesus, about people you know, throwing out different ideas about who he is, and then a revelation happens. Right? New information is given. And it's with this moment that I want to zoom in on today. Because what happens to Peter, specifically, is a prophetic calling. God is calling him to be a prophet. And God also calls all people to be prophets now. Right? After Pentecost, we're all prophets. So we're going to look at Jesus' special call on Peter's life. But we're also going to look at the same call that comes to all of us in our life. God calls all of his people to be prophets. And when he does that, he gives them three different gifts. Three gifts we're going to look at. First thing he gives is a message to proclaim. A message to proclaim. The second thing he gives is a new identity. And then third, he gives us assured success, even in face of the worst enemies. So after the day of Pentecost, remember, all God's people are prophets. So let's take a look at how it plays out for Peter, that calling, and how it's going to play out for us as well. So the first thing, like I said, God's gift of a message. This comes to Peter in the form of, of new information about Jesus's identity. So, so up until this point in the Gospels, the disciples have been following Jesus because they think he's really important, right? He does all sorts of miracles, he has compelling teaching, and they're excited about what's gonna happen next. And there's buzz in the air too, or not just in Jesus's inner circle, but a lot of people are talking about him. People are even saying that based on all of his miracles and teaching that he might be a prophet reincarnated. And there's anticipation building. And so this message that Peter is gonna receive actually starts getting communicated 
based on the place that Jesus goes to. In verse 13, we see that Jesus takes the disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi to ask them who they say he is. Remember, Father Alex says this all the time, the author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit doesn't give us meaningless details, right? Whenever there's a place mentioned, an action, a time of day, there's something important in that information. So Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus is going, is the furthest Jesus ever travels away from Jerusalem in the Gospel of Matthew, right? It's way out of the range of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the temple that he's been preaching against. It's a place firmly held by the Gentiles. And it's a shrine, actually, to um, pagan gods, pagan gods like Pan, who's the god of everything. It's a place um, Gentiles would go to get an answer for an urgent matter. It's also named after a famous Roman leader, uh, Philip, who's the son of Herod the Great. And the reason it's called Caesarea Philippi is as fun fact. There's two Caesareas in the ancient world. And so there's Caesarea, and it's like, which one are you talking about? Oh, the one named after Philip. It's like Paris, Texas, and Paris, France, right? <laughs> so, so this is a place that's like deep enemy territory. And it would be a great place if you were a military leader to announce your declaration of war, right? It would be like, this is where you're going to put your flag in the ground. So that's why the disciples are aiming so high. They knew their scriptures. The king will return, it says in Malachi 3.23, like Elijah. So maybe you're, maybe you're Elijah, right? Or maybe you're Jeremiah preaching against the temple. That's what Jeremiah did, right? Jeremiah is a suffering servant. Maybe you're Jeremiah. There's actually a really cool story um, in the Apocrypha, in 2 Maccabees, of Jeremiah the prophet coming down from heaven and giving a sword to this general. So maybe they think that's going to happen. Like, oh, we're going to go fight the Gentiles, and Jeremiah is going to give a sword, and it's going to be awesome. But all these things aren't clicking with Jesus, right? And that's when Peter gets the message. He gets the new information. He realizes in this moment that all this time they've been following Jesus, they've actually been witnessing a lot more than the rise of a political leader or even a prophet come back from the dead. They're witnessing God himself come down. He says, you are the son of the living God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you're, you're, you're divine, and Jesus commends Peter for saying this, for realizing this, but he also says it's not Peter who's come up with this, right? Verse 17, it says it's revealed to him by the Father in heaven. The message comes directly from God. And when you get a message from God, you're about to go on mission. That's always the pattern, right? So we're going to look at, at the specifics of, of, of Peter's mission in just a second, but the important thing here to grasp is that it's about Jesus's identity, who do you say that I am? Because we are faced with that same exact question, right? Today, we have to make that same answer. Now, luckily, we have a huge advantage over Peter in this moment. God calls all of his people to be prophets, but we have an even fuller revelation than even Peter did in this moment. We have all things necessary to salvation in the scriptures. We know that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's a different kind of Messiah, right? We know that he'll go on to bring in the nations, not through a conquering army, but when he's lifted up on the cross. We know that Jesus is the king of the universe and that he'll ascend to his throne in heaven and come back to judge the world. We know about Jesus' atoning death, which pays for our sins, and his resurrection, which shows us a preview of what we can look forward to. 
This is our revelation that each baptized Christian is called to proclaim. You know, the church, at the end of the day, is a storytelling community. We have a message to bear. There are lots of ideas and opinions about what the church should do or how you know, she might go about doing it. But at the end of the day, all of our sermons, our sacraments, our programming, our service to the poor is all really in service of this one message. If we aren't telling that story and living it out with our lives, then we really aren't being the church. Just like Peter at Caesarea, we are given this message about Jesus and our conversion, and we're told to spread it. So this is our first calling as prophets. God gives us the message of his salvation. So the next thing God gives us, and what he gives Peter, is a new identity. Prophets are empowered with a new identity from God. And when Peter gets this revelation, he proclaims the truth. Jesus gives him a new name. His name, when we first meet him, is Simon. And then Jesus gives him this name, Cephas, or Rock, or if you like boxing, Rocky. Um, <laughs> some people got it. <laughs> when, uh, when God calls his people and gives them this, me- this message, he often gives them a new name. We've seen this a lot in the Old Testament. If you look at your Isaiah passage in your bulletin, Isaiah talks about a different rock, the rock that Israel is hewn from, which is Abraham. Abraham started off with a different name. He was originally Abram. But then in Genesis 17, God changes his name. He changes him from Abram to Abraham, which means father of many. And the promise of Abraham is uh, about fruitfulness, right? Even though he's 99 years old, he's going to bear children, and they're going to go on to be this, this people that God has founded with him. Now Peter is the rock, right? Now God is calling a different rock. Abraham, or, uh, and just like Abraham, Peter is also going to bring more people into God's family. There's also a really interesting parallel to Peter's calling to Jeremiah's call. You know, they threw out Jeremiah as a possible thing that Jesus uh, was, but actually the call of Peter here lines up with the call of Jeremiah quite, quite directly. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 1, God tells Jeremiah when he calls him, see, I have set you this day over nations to pluck, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, and behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar with bronze walls. They will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you, for I am with you. So Abraham, Jeremiah, Peter are all called into this new prophetic ministry, and they're given a new status, a new self. So why does Jesus pick the word rock? Well, like I said, it is kind of a reference to Abraham, but it's also cluing us in on what Jesus is doing in this moment. Jesus is building a new people. Jesus says the wise man builds his house on rock, and that's exactly what he's doing. You might hear sometimes people say the church isn't a building, and that's true. But it's also true that Scripture uses the metaphor of a building quite a bit. Peter himself uses it um, many, many years after this moment when he's writing to his congregation in 1 Peter 2. He calls his congregation living stones being built into a spiritual house. That's what Christians are. We're living stones that God is putting together. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles, and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. 
So the church is God's new people that he's gathering together, and he's starting with Peter, laying Peter as a foundational rock. And this is really good news for us, who are today also called into being prophets, because Peter is not an obvious choice for a solid foundation at first glance. Peter is always backsliding, right? We heard a few weeks ago um, how he, he comes on the water when Jesus commands him, but he falls just after a couple of moments, right? He does have great highs that we're going to see in just a little bit. He preaches on the day of Pentecost, right? But he's, he's always flip-flopping on things in the book of Acts, and most famously, he betrays Jesus in his hour of need. But this is the rock that Jesus has chosen. This is the rock. So uh, the, the reason he does this is because the work is not about Peter. It's about Jesus. It's about God's work. This is kind of God's MO, right? It's almost like he's showing off, right? When he decides to raise up a new people, who does he start with? Well, some 99-year-old man on the edge of, you know, nowhere, Abraham, right? When he, when he builds his church, who does he pick? This kind of floundering, you know, not-so-great guy, right? John the Baptist says uh, something like this when he, in Matthew 3, says, I say to you, from these very stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. Right? God works out his purposes through us, despite our doubts, despite our, backsli uh, our backslidings, because we are members of his body. We have been given a new identity. Through our baptism, we have been sealed an unerasable new status. So Christ calls us to be prophets, but he also calls us his own. And that's, that's the second thing that we gain. Just like Peter, we gain a new identity when God calls us. So now, finally, the last gift we gain is assured victory, assured success. Prophets are assured success even in the battle against the worst enemies. So when this message comes to Peter about Jesus' divine status, his kingship, and he gets his new identity as the rock, Jesus assures him in verse 18, that the gates of Hades, or the powers of death, will not overpower the church that he builds. We hear a lot about the church in the rest of the New Testament, in Acts, especially in the Epistles, in Revelation, but there's only actually two times in the Gospels that we hear that word, church. It's, uh, the Greek is ekklesia, and it just means assembly, people coming together, people gathering together, usually out of what they're kind of doing in their usual day, coming together for a purpose. So it has kind of a sense of a religious gathering for sure, but it also could be a military assembly. You might think about the Israelites traveling in the book of Numbers, right? They go in these big formations, and there is a religious significance, right? They're surrounding the ark, but there's also this idea that they could throw down if they need to, right? They're, they're going into enemy territory, taking the promised land. The people of God gather because of our purpose, our love for God and for each other, but also because the, if you're the people of God, there's always conflict ahead. The church is always faced with controversies, with opposition. The church, in other words, will face down the gates of Hades. And Peter doesn't quite grasp all of this yet. Right? He's just sort of lost in the moment. But at this very moment, Jesus is preparing Peter for the next phase of the mission. You can think about like in every fantasy movie where the elder like wizard guy passes on the sword or the weapon. You know, like in Legend of Zelda, he's like, it's dangerous to go alone, take this. 
He's giving Peter some tools and some information about the road ahead. Because remember the place that we're in, right? It's the most pagan controlled outpost in the empire. It's far away from, from the safety of most of the Jewish people in this, in, in this place, right? It's also right after what happened last week with Father Alex's sermon where Jesus has just healed a Canaanite woman, right? So all of the stuff that Jesus is, is, is doing and where he's doing it is pointing to the fact that his ministry is about to widen to the, to the nations, to the Gentiles. Jesus is coming for the nations. And Peter is a key player in this. He's going to be at the forefront of widening that scope. That's why Peter gives, or sorry, Jesus gives Peter the authority to bind and loose. This is something that rabbis gave to their students. It basically just meant church discipline. You get to decide who's in and who's out. And Peter is not the only one given this power. We, in a few more chapters, in chapter 18, the rest of the disciples are going to give this or be given this power to bind and loose. He's also given the keys to the kingdom. Keys to the kingdom. That is a reference to um, Isaiah 22, which basically just makes Peter a prime minister, an ambassador. He can act now on Jesus's behalf. What he opens will stay open, and what he closes will stay closed. It's a responsibility that Jesus is bestowing as he is about to face all of this conflict. So um, when Peter passes on the message in later parts of the, of the scriptures, he's ratifying God's will on earth as it is in heaven. You can think about in Acts chapter 2, when he preaches on the day of Pentecost, he preaches about the full inclusion of the Gentiles. Right? He will receive visions later from Jesus, which show him the Jews are not the only true members of God's kingdom. He's opening the door to the nations. He's also closing doors a little bit later. In Acts 11, he, he pioneers judgment against the Jews in Jerusalem. So this is what Jesus is preparing him for, the conflict, the controversy. And he's promising him, while you're doing this, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. This is going to take a toll on Peter it's going to lead to some of his lowest moments, being thrown in jail multiple times, going on dangerous mission trips, conflict within the church. But this is right in line with Jesus has been saying the whole time. John 16, 33, in his farewell discourse, he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus doesn't assure Peter, you're not going to have any problems. He just says, I'm going to be with you when you face these problems. That's kind of part of the plot twist, right? Getting closer to God means getting closer to danger, but also being assured of safety. Because Peter and the disciples, you know, they go up to this desolate place thinking Jesus is going to do all this amazing stuff, bring in this era of salvation. But Jesus flips it around and says, I'm not the prophet. You're the prophet. I am going to face down the gates of hell, and you're coming with me. Right? And this is exactly what God calls each of us to do today. We know there's no Sunday without Good Friday. Right? As Paul says, we receive our salvation as we become imitators of God. Imitators. What does God do? He goes to the cross. That's what we're called to do, to present our lives as living sacrifices. Becoming a follower of Jesus doesn't mean we're exempt from problems. Following Jesus actually means the opposite. We're supposed to pick up our cross and go first into the line of battle, right? But it's all coupled with this promise of victory. The gates of hell 
will not prevail against the church. Though we may be disappointed with our own progress or look out at the church and be disappointed with you know, the weakness or confusion we might see, but the mission can't fail because the driving force is God. The driving force is God. So God is still calling prophets into his service. And when he calls you, he will give you a message to proclaim about Jesus, a new identity, and a guaranteed victory. And I just wanted to close with this wonderful prayer from the prayer book. Uh, we say this at morning prayer. Um, it's a prayer for mission. I just thought it was so perfect. So please pray this with me. O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.